Hi, I'm Tony Duchesne, and this is the Drinks with Tony show. A uh, few quick notes before we rev up into this week's show. First off, I teach an, I teach a free writing workshop once a month at the Los Angeles Library. And now that we're all hunkered down in this tale of woe, I'm teaching the class online, which means it's open to everyone worldwide. Uh, the next class is April 1st at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern, 2 a.m. London. Uh, we're doing it from Zoom, so install the new app that all the kids are talking about and join me Wednesday, April 1st for a free creative writing workshop. Go to TonyDuchesne.com for the Zoom link. That's TonyDuchesne.com. And I interviewed Chip before this horrific spread of athlete's foot that kept us inside our homes. So we actually footsied together in person at a cafe for this interview. So now you have context of our existential doom before we were in lockdown. It's the Drinks with Tony show. Hi, I'm Chip Jacobs, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Chip Jacobs. He's the author of Strange As It Seems, The Impossible Life of Gordon Zoller, Smog Town, The Lung-Burning History of Pollution in Los Angeles, and his latest book, Arroyo, a novel. Chip, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Should I call you Crip? <laughs> Crip would be great. Or Crib. Uh, that, that was interesting because people got chip. You were telling me people get chip wrong. They constantly get it wrong. So actually now I just kind of just go along with whatever they say. I was actually on a uh, Google Hangout for an L.A. Times story I did. Yeah. And, and they, the host of it got it wrong. And, I, and, he, and he got red-faced when I said it's actually chip. And it's like, dude, you know, whatever. Yeah. As, long as, my, as long as people can read my name, my byline, that's what I care. Maybe they'll pronounce it better. Exactly. Just yeah, as long as as long as they get it right when they're doing the reviews, it's a good review. When they're doing a good review, they better get that name right. Yeah. <laughs> Even a bad review. It's a bad, it's a bad review. I'm Chris. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'll just take whatever you know. I'll, I'm just I'm just glad to be here. So what can I say? I'm like Mae West. Yeah. You um, you come you come out you come out of more of a journalism uh, background, yeah. I do. That's where I, uh, you know, went to USC, got my degree in journalism, uh, had a brief detour when I went to grad school and wanted to save the world from nuclear apocalypse. But uh, was that during the Reagan? The, was that during the? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I have this spectacular ability to go into professions and kill it. So I wanted to be a State Department Foreign Service officer or a CIA agent analyst, and then Mikhail Gorbachev comes into you know office. In the you know destroying the Soviet Union, then I decide to go into journalism, and then that breaks down. And so you know now I'm trying to destroy publishing if I can. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so I um I d I did come out of the journalism world, and um, I, I must say I miss it every day. I miss the camaraderie, the excitement, the surprises, the ability to catch history on the fly. Yeah. You know the excitement of of trying to put together a puzzle. And, um, you know, the industry, I, I think I've read, um, the, there's 60 there's like 60% less print reporters now than there were 20 years ago. So when you look around the world, including our country, you'll see why problems haven't been arrested or weren't spotlighted earlier. It's just that, you know, the profession is just hemorrhaging people. Yeah. It's, it's a sad state of affairs. But, um, uh, um, you know, I think all along there was a novelist in me. And uh, but I, but being a reporter did help yeah. because I did learn dialogue and I did learn psychology. And I I saw, you know, how people acted 
you know, in public and in private. And, you know, I appreciated public works jobs like the, like the Colorado Street Bridge. And so it actually was a great training. Yeah. But in terms of learning English and character development and literary structure, that, that's an acquired skill. And I'm still learning. Yeah. Well, what's great is we all get to continue to learn. I think I, I, it's yeah. it's like even when you've been doing a draft of a, I was talking to students the other day, I was like right. doing a draft of a book. You know, you're a different writer when you finished and now you got to restart and you know the characters in a completely different way. You have a, yeah. so it's, it's going to be disappointing to go back to the beginning, but you have to remember that was back when I was a baby writer four months ago. You know, yeah. it's like we, you can learn by leaps and bounds in that. You do, and I and I have a firm. Be- I mean, I think in a way, writing a novel is a little bit of like, you know, um, having a baby. You know, at first yeah. there's excitement. There's sometimes alcohol involved. Yeah. There's euphoria, yeah. joy. Then there comes the morning sickness, and that's your third or fourth draft, right? <laughs> and I, no apologies to the fairer sex because they are much stronger than us and me in particular. But then you know it, you know uh, it, it comes out and it's quite messy. Yeah. And then you're giving your baby over to the world for them to judge, yeah. you know. And sometimes it's you know that's in a cherubic little creature that you create and other times it's this hideous thing and please don't enroll in kindergarten so i i i i also um did learn what a lot of experienced just just phenomenally talented writers say is that you'll know that you're on the right track when a character start telling you what to do it it does and and it uh, man i i mean i literally burned through you know three and four printer cartridges thousands of pages multiple drafts pushed myself to exhaustion before that started happening and still i released a novel with mistakes and things that i've now corrected for the paperback but you you know it was refreshing when i didn't have to think well what can i do to make it entertaining or what would nick do my lead character he just said this is where you i want you to take me you know and i'm you know it's sort of me and so I'm getting to know my own alternative chip, you know? Yeah, it's crazy because we, it's almost like, it, um, I don't know if Henry Miller said this, but he said it was like channeling. Yeah. And it's really strange because, and it takes a ton of work to work on your character and rewrites when all of a sudden you're like, they're working for you. Yes. And it's, and it's, it's almost eerie. It's just like, who did I just get possessed by? It's, yeah. But that's, that, I think that's magical. You know, it's magical. And um, I, I was struggling for a while to come up with a over-the-top finale, you know, where my characters uh, ascend, but you're not really sure into which universe. And uh, it just it came to me after struggling, crinkling paper, cursing like a sailor at dawn you know um, but oftentimes I would I would take walks with my dog who inspired my book and now he's on his last legs before he goes off back to his back home and uh, th- they started appearing to me and I could actually see the scenes and and that's actually that that's where my my, my last my last you know part of the book the climax occurs yeah. you know and um, so uh, I can't wait to do it again but it takes a lot of work. I mean, every time you do a pass on a novel, a mine's 130,000 word historical novel, it is like being at the base of Mount Kilimanjaro. You got to strap on your, you know, your oxygen mast and, you know, bribe a Sherpa. But, you know, the characters will tell you which path to take up the mountain. Yeah. Oh, I like that analogy yeah. a lot. I might steal that. Go for it. Go for it. Okay, I just wanted to get that on tape. <laughs> Trademark Tony. Not, <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. I, no, no trademarks here. I don't, I don't, we don't got to bring lawyers into this. Hey, darn it. I was going to ask one. I'm sure there's a lawyer here. But it, it's, I mean, I, you know, when, I, when I've written nonfiction books, you can do it artfully. 
you know, and but it is still a finite set of known facts. Yeah. And it is like create it, it is, you know, there is a creative joy to arranging them in order. But when you're doing a novel, that was the problem. You can say anything you want. You can go any place you, you desire. The digressions are, are OK. But, you know, um, it, it's it, you have to kind of uh, winnow your universe. Otherwise, people are going to be lost in space. And that took me a while. You know, and I cut 30,000 words off my book because I was trying to be all things to all people. I and mean, I had more murder stuff in it and snakes and things. And so I did. And I even cut back on a lot of the magical realism, which some people love in my book and some people turn them off. But it's OK. In the end, I did follow one piece of advice. Yeah. You know, I should have gone to law school. No, I um, <laughs> like my mom wanted me to. No, I, I, I wrote the book I would want to read. Yes. You know, with ridiculous stuff ridiculous scenes a lot hopefully a lot of heart you know and a dog that just a lot more in tune with with the world than humans with all their ambition greed and contradictions that's that's the thing you you have to write the film or the book you want to make or you want to read because there's so much blood and sweat and tears in it if you're not if 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 that heart isn't in on it i I don't know how people do it just as a machine i may i maybe i wish i knew how they did it as a machine so i could be more prolific but i just i just feel like i get my ass kicked but there's a joy to it too almost like a fight club uh scenario where we just we're going into the ring so we can get our asses kicked mentally to get to something that means something to oh, us. Sure. The struggle, actually, the struggle is the joy. And you yeah. do, do have to embrace that. And, and I do want to learn the next time out because uh, my father passed away in the middle of it. He was he had me much later in life. He was almost 98. But that, oh, wow. that sidetracked me. And because I wanted to keep going on the novel while we were dealing with all the gazillion loose ends, I wrote a 30,000-word treatment, you know, 30,000 words. Wow. And when I've gone back and looked at it, I used like 5% of that treatment. Yeah. But at least it was keeping my story alive and my characters, you know, sentient in my yeah. imagination. But um, it, it's so next time out, I'm not doing that. You know, I have a much clearer, sharper idea of what I'm going to do, you yeah. know, but I'm not going to do a 10 page outline. I'm not doing any 30,000 word treatment, you know. Right. So, I mean, it's can you harness that? Because we only have so many times we're going to hit that keyboard in this life. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I'm, pa- I'm even more passionate to do better. I always want to get better. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, I, I don't mind people negative reviews. I just mind reviews of lazy reviewers right. that, that um, cruise through it and then slap their misguided opinions all around the Internet. I have this one woman who's part of Amazon Vine. You know, I don't know how you feel about this. These Amazon Vine reviewers and people in Amazon's program, they, this woman is reviewing 300 Amazon products a year, right? That's more than one a day. So when I, she got so many facts wrong in, my, in her review about my book. It almost made me think she was doing it intentionally. But then she went on different platforms all around and, and just slimy. You know, it's okay for her not to like my book, but but she just, like she said, the bridge came alive in 1913, or 12, you mean 1913? And she kept repeating these same factual errors, and it just told me she's sloppy. And, uh, you know, I did I did make the LA Times bestseller list, I don't like to talk about it, but I was very tempted. To Congratulations, by the way. I want to send it to her, you know, but then I thought, oh no, this is what these, you know, a lot of people that live online, she will use that as ammunition to say, I'm a martyr, he's attacking me, right. you know, and, right. and so I, you know, I, 
I don't know. I, I, I think we have to go beat the actual shit of our bad reviewers. So then when they say, oh, my God, this person's a terrible person. He's attacking me. It's true. Maybe so. <laughs> Maybe so. You know, but I mean, it's the best revenge is, you know, just moving forward and being happy. And, and, I, and I am. But I mean, it was. It, How hard is it to move forward and be happy? Because I, I feel like when I get there, it's a great place to be. Yeah. But damn, during that process, when my brain is having the dual dialogue of go after them make them hurt and then you got that weird like forgive it'll be better for you and it's just i'm it's just like i i want to do both i can't do both what do i do i'm hoping there will be some event where i can send her tickets you know hey come to the premiere (laughs) complimentary you know and i'll misspell her name you know, but I mean, uh, to, to, to think that a woman reviewing 300 Amazon products can give a careful read to a longer book that's very intricate is yeah. a joke, is a friggin' joke. And I wish yeah. there was more investigative stories about Amazon's program. But, you know, the problem is we all are sort of slaves to Amazon because they've taken over the book industry yeah. to an extent. And I feel like I'm a clone in Jeff Bezos army. You know, and I don't like it. And no offense to him, he came up with a brilliant idea. But when I see what's going on with bookstores and I see the pressure other fellow authors are under to get to it, hit their algorithm, it makes you be somebody you don't want to be. Yeah. You know, I don't want to be groveling for reviews, you know, but yeah. it's it, it, it's that he's single handedly kind of changed creative psychology. I, and the and the groveling for reviews, I don't like it at all. And I hate seeing my friends that you know they're like, oh, I need you know, I need to get a hundred so we hit this. And I'm, yeah, and it's just like I can't do it, and I won't do it, even at the even at the hurt of myself. I yeah. just can't. I, I I just I don't mark it well. Yeah. I I, I just. I, I don't know. I wish I, and that's my problem. Yeah. I probably need to get over that myself. I have self-esteem issues as well. So, well, you know, there's other things. I think you're pretty accomplished, Tony. But <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't like what it brings out of me. And, you know, there's a lot of parts of the book world, book yeah. festivals, I really don't care for. And so when I really ask myself, what makes me the happiest? You know, writing a, writing a, a, a sentence that I think is funny or compelling. That, yeah. you know, my keyboard is the area where I'm the happiest. Yes, I like the launch. And I like to hear the applause. I mean, I have an ego. Right. I don't like talking about myself as much as my stories, but really the joy of being behind the keyboard and knowing only this, only this idiot in this world could, yeah. write, could write that. That's, that does bring me happiness. I come from a long line of creative people. Uh-huh. And I feel like that's really, I, I, bet, I, want, I think that's their source of joy, their wellspring uh, of creative joy. Because if you have to look for it externally, you're just going to be disappointed. Yeah. I come from a long line, I think, of people whose creativity was stifled, and um, they in various for various reasons. And but they had to create it. And I just look back at you know my grandparents and stuff that just lived very sorrowful lives. And I kind of re-examine it and go, Oh my God, they they were storytellers. They they needed an outlet. They didn't have an outlet, so they hit the booze and they had their you know. And it's just um, and then I feel like just you know after I finally got to be creative when I was in my late twenties. It, it just was bubbling out of me where I had to like tame the dog down for a while. It was like, yeah. you know, it was like a pubescent, you know, t- 
teenager walking through a shower room of women <laughs> just to go to the library and learn things. Yeah. It's just, I'm just I like going. That. Image. Yeah, you know, um, uh, I hear you. Um, I, I'm, uh, there's scientific evidence, and I, I personally believe we do carry our ancestors' emotional journey, yeah. and it's embedded in our DNA. And they've, they've, they've proven this with um, mice, and now they're doing human trials. Okay. And so, you know, you were, you know, it wasn't an accident you were thinking about your ancestors. Right. You can't help it. It's in your DNA. So hopefully it will be somewhat reversed. Maybe some of your successes will be embedded in their DNA and their next existence. You know, I always want to think of the optimistic, optimistic turn. You know what I mean? But it's, um, um, you know, uh, being a former journalist, I'm an author now, and having written non nonfiction, God, I just love the idea of being a novelist. It's, it, it, I still have trouble thinking I've written a work of fiction. It really does, yeah. you know. And um, I, I, you know, my story is about the Colorado Street Bridge yeah. in my hometown, yeah. and I have a mission to tell people this is the origin story of this concrete queen that brooks the Arroyo Seco, yeah. and it wasn't always called Suicide Bridge, but the re I believe in my postu literary postulation. You know, there was so much bad blood, and betrayal, backstabbing, uh, and actual blood, actually blood from, that it created a dark energy around this place. And, um, you know, I want to bring it back and give people hope, even people that have lost folks to that bridge, because you can't live in Pasadena, weirdly, without meeting somebody who's been affected, seen a body on a walk, lost a loved one. You know, it is, most, as I say in my book, it's both the most beautiful structure in the San Gabriel Valley and also the most uh, tragic. Yeah. You know, and the paradox for me, I, I'm really interested in this. Two things can be two sides of the same, two different sides of the same coin. And right. you're going to flip it up in the air. Which side is it going to be today? Yeah. So I was really motivated to tell that story. It all sprang out of a newspaper story I did in 2003, 2004, where I met... Uh, uh, you know, I felt that my mind met the construction workers that died off this bridge in 1913 uh, uh, when part of it, part of an arch collapse. And my goal is to get their name on a plaque. You know, John Visco, Harry Collins, C.J. Johnson, I haven't forgotten you. I want your name on there besides, you know, glorifying this, the city and a contractor that, that built this thing. So I feel like it's not just an accident I wrote about this bridge. I grew up in Pasadena. You know, when I was in high school, we used to party down by there. I had a, I had a tremendous car accident there. A with an already checkered driver's license, and I got out to inspect the horror and carnage of my parents' Pontiac Grand Safari. And I, I remember for the first time I looked up at that bridge and it was just kind of nourishly positioned in the Arroyo Seco, these, these pedestrian bays and these beautiful romantic lights. And I felt like, I don't know, I felt the connection to it. And maybe, uh, maybe that bridge knew something that I'd be circling back years later. So never doubt a concrete's ability to, you know, tell the future. I love that. Yeah. I I wish we were at the end of the show because that's like something I'd be like. All right, thanks a lot for. <laughs> oh, yeah. So cool. now, so now you got to up that. That now you got to you know now now you got even more expectations as we get toward the end. Let's bring it on. Let's bring it on. <laughs> the, I so I'm I'm kind of new to L.A. because yeah. I grew up in the Bay, San Francisco Bay Area. Right. So we had the Golden Gate Bridge, which sure. and then there was even that film about how many people killed themselves off the right. Golden Gate Bridge. And, yeah. Right. I had a friend. She did it, and it's um. It, they never wanted to put the net because it would look bad. It would just make it look bad. And I was just that guy that was like, would you put a goddamn net out there? You know, but um, but then I, when I came to L.A. and I didn't even know that was called a suicide bridge when I was driving over it. 
And I was, as I was going over it, I was like going, oh, this is a suicide type bridge. It just, I had that, I had that feeling without even knowing. And they're like, people are like, oh, it's called the suicide bridge. I'm like, are you kidding me? Yes, it is. Yeah. It's, um, you know, the, the goal, I mean, you build a bridge, hopeless people are going to be, are going to flock to it. You know what I mean? And I know that, um, I think I just read San Francisco's doing their netting job costs like $330 million. Yeah. You know, that's very pricey. But but you will, I mean, we could we could probably use that for healthcare. Then they wouldn't even get on the bridge. But you know, <laughs> but something really fascinating. And you know, I, in my book, I didn't want to make it about suicide bridge. Right. But my characters grapple with it in the end, and they have a they have a fight over one of them saying, "I'm going to write a book about the bridge." So you know, writers do this. They put a book about their subject inside the characters' interactions. But um, it, uh, statistics show that 80 percent of the people that try to jump off a bridge, if they're deterred that first time, will not repeat. It. It's a momentary, uh, it's a one time um, lapse of hopelessness, you know, and uh, there's actually a big connection between schizophrenia and bridge jumpers. So now we're getting data and all that. And, you know, uh, though, of course, people want to, you know, keep this landmark looking beautiful. But when people are callous and, you know, when you go online and when I've posted about my book and people will say the most heartless things about, well, let them jump. It's a fast way out. That said like somebody that never had a suicidal person in their family. You know what I mean? Or they never had suicidal ideation and never had to, you know, I checked myself in once. So, so it's like there may, there's a couple times if I went through with certain things, I wouldn't be here talking to you and we would have this lovely conversation. So when people say, oh, it's the quick way out, I'm just like, no, 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 no. Yeah, it's, you know, um, the preservationists have done a lot of great things in Pasadena, but sometimes, in my opinion, they can be too much absolutist. I feel like if it's a, everything to them is a slippery slope. If they let this one turn of the century building go, it gives precedent to destroying a slew of others. You know, but not all historic things are worth saving, just like all new things aren't worth keeping. So it's, you know... I don't know. It's it it, it bothers me. Um, I don't want to see. You know. It, it, anyway, there's a raging civic debate going on in Pasadena about yes, over the Colorado Street Bridge and the fencing because you're not. Yes, um, I did learn though. Um, in 1921, Charlie Chaplin re- re- released his full his first true film. It was called The Kid. The kid, and it was about a baby that's born to a destitute mother who gives it up for adoption. Right? Actually, she sneaks the baby into what she thinks is a rich man's car, and then two car thieves steal it. It is a brilliant movie without talking and all that. It's like 50 minutes. It's gripping, uh, well thought out, and a lot of heart as much as anything you'll see today. Charlie Chaplin was a genius, but he did have a scene after this mother gave up her baby. She came out to Pasadena, and there's and and is looking distraught at the Colorado Street Bridge, the idea she's going to jump. So that means only eight years after it was created, Ward was out in Los Angeles. Pasadena was a beautiful place to die. There's a lot of preconceptions that took till the Great Depression till that happened, you know? The early 30s. No, that's not the case. It was already in the public consciousness. So this has been something that we've been dealing with many, many years. What was it like... Because when I when I think of growing up in Pasadena or growing up in Los Angeles, I just think it's the greatest thing ever. Because you were especially Pasadena, you might have been around Van Halen or things the the, the cultural things that I looked that that I looked down here and went, oh my God, those people are you know those they're never 
those aren't real people. Those are superheroes on records, you know. What was it like being around, like, that juice? Um, it, it was cool. I mean, but, you know, when I was a teenager, you're not really as fascinated by celebrity. However, I was, uh, I mean, I did want to be, I wanted to look and act like Paul McCartney and play guitar like Jimmy Page. So I used to take music lessons in Hastings Ranch, which is in East Pasadena. And uh, I remember one day I was going in there to learn my minor scales or whatever, and there's a car, there's a, there's a Jeep, Hurt diagonally on the sidewalk. It's like, what a-hole thinks he can do this? So walk in, it's Eddie Van Halen. And he's at the effects counter, and he's a, a shorter guy. And his, I mean, he, his hair seemed to be longer than his actual height. And, um, you know, it, it was cool to see him. And uh, we did have a lot of famous people around, but I, I think I was most fixated on the idea, oh my God, Van Halen came from here. And, you know, they did play local high schools. One time they played a pre-Van Halen version played at school dance, and I even went, I think I got a card, I think they were called Mammoth, and David Lee Roth, I believe, gave it to me. I wish I would have kept that. But, um, so actually, in the end of my book, I I do have, like, what I call Pasadena Sgt. Pepper Band, Sergeant Pepper Hart's band album attending this ceremony where that my character interrupts. And so I have Sally Field, I have Octavia Butler, I have a Nobel Prize winning Caltech physicist there. You know, uh, Harry Hamlin. There's something in the water about Pasadena. I think in a way for a lot of celebrities, like Sally Field was born here, but others that come here, I think it's like an alternative West Side. It's got cachet and singularity about it, but it's not as crowded and kind of I don't know, suffocating. And and that's why I do think a lot of celebrities are here. Meryl Streep has a house here now. So does uh, Mandy Moore. You know, of course, I want Paul McCartney to move here. And there was a big rumor that he did. Oh, really? But unfortunately, I don't think it's true. He has been known to show up at the local Mexican restaurant in town, Mahari's, for a a, uh, margarita. Uh Of course, I happen never to be there. And, uh, you know, I don't think he's eating the carnitas being the vegetarian that he is. But there is some, there is a cachet about Pasadena. But, you know, one of the points of my book, Arroyo, um, is, you know, there is, we want to believe in myth. You know, we want to drink that, you know, and bring that in and think that there's a virtuousness and an exceptionalism. And maybe there is, but it's relative. And Pasadena just does a very good job of hiding its darker sides and criminals and misadventures behind extremely tidy hedges. Right. So, you know, don't be deceived, you know, and it is a great place, but um, it's not perfect. And Pasadena doesn't like to get criticized. I've also learned from releasing my book. Some people you had some backlash from that. Yeah, I definitely did. Some people thought, oh, my God, he's writing a historical novel and he used the F word. And he's sarcastic, and there's a clairvoyant dog, and there's reincarnation. You know, the, the, you know those things aren't in a typical historical novel. But I, well, why would you want to write a typical anything? Uh, you know what I mean? If you, you know, if, if I see zigging, I want to zag. Right. You know, and I want to write. I wouldn't want to read that kind of plotting historical novel where things are predictable. I wanted to get out there, and as a fellow screenwriter said, make my you know book weird as shit. I like that. Yeah. And it, well, it was interesting, like going back to the uh, how you were getting your book together and you yeah. had the 30-page, was it the 30-page 30, 30 treatment? Right, 30,000 words. 30, words. Oh, Jesus Christ. I know. <laughs> but um, the, at the same time, I feel like that may have been part of what you needed to do to get to where you needed to get to in the story. There, yeah. Where I, I don't feel like there's anything that should be... It, that it was your way to get into it, even if you lose everything 
you, you had to write those words. I, I don't know. Am I being too optimistic? No I, no, I think I had a struggle. I mean, I mean, what's the point of writing it? You know, uh, going back to Paul McCartney, you know, he uh, the famous story about yesterday is he dreamt the melody of yesterday, and then he'd go around London to others and goes, "Have you heard this song? You know, have you heard this?" And so things came to him magically. I w- you know, it, it, that's a very rare yeah. case. Yeah. You know, and you do have to struggle. And I do think in the process of loving your book, you have to hate its guts for a while. Yeah. Yeah. You have to hate yourself for coming up with it. What was I thinking? And I went through that period, you know, and also I, you know, if you're distracted and the internet is a few clicks away, now I understand why there's actual writer app apps that you can get that will not let you connect to the internet, yeah. you know, during a certain work period, because I, that, 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 that is something that really does carve into your efficiency. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, and by the end, I was working so hard through weekends, way too much caffeine. I was really ready to run, drop from exhaustion. I'm not kidding you. I got, gave myself trigger finger, where your finger stays locked, from hitting the backspace. Uh-huh. You know, I was making so many mistakes. So now you can't even see that on my keyboard. And uh, but you know what? I, it's I'm I'm glad I struggled, and um, I became a giant fanboy of Teddy Roosevelt, who loved Pasadena, who was worried the Arroyo Seco was going to get overdeveloped, and he said a life without struggle is not basically a life without worth living, right. you know. And he struggled in his life. He lost his wife. Of course, his boss, you know, William McKinley, gets assassinated. You know, he saw pain, and but he also saw the value in setbacks and forging your character. And uh, you know, I did, I do still channel Teddy Roosevelt. Man, I wish he was alive now with a Twitter account. Wouldn't that be incredible? <laughs> well, <laughs> we may see some dark sides of a fella that we may not have seen. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if Twitter brings out the virtue in everybody. <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> You know, um, I created actually a whole storyline about him in my book where my ki- my main character, Nick Chance, interacts with him and becomes known as the Teddy Stumper because he's won some science award. Teddy actually did speak in Pasadena in 1903 after he successfully negotiated the Panama Canal Treaty. He's speaking at this fancy flo- floral festoon place because Pasadena is about the flowers, right? Yeah. Next to a stuffed grizzly bear. And so my character gets to ask, ask, gets asked one question, the President of the United States, and he goes, if you love nature so much, why are you so devoted to killing its most beautiful creatures, right? And Teddy Roosevelt is stuttering and stammering and he goes, from now on, you shall be known as the Teddy Stumper. And so I created a New York Times article covering all this and so I, I had so much fun doing that I have to tell you you know to try to kind of emulate New York Times at that time and then of course Teddy Roosevelt gets sick of high school students trying to stump him with questions right. and after a while it's like I hate that guy you know so um, uh, and, and I, I love how I love it when we yeah. talk about the mechanics of this stuff just how animated you get it's I, I see the joy yeah I know that's, that's the juice that's this whole thing it was and of course in the end of my book you know it starts in 1912 it ends in 1993 the bridge was uh, opened in, 19, in 1913 it was yeah. the beginning of the automobile age the you know the car companies had a lot vested in that bridge you know that bridge was also a somewhat diabolical lane transaction you have to read the book to see um, and uh, then it was re-inaugurated after seismic retrofitting in 1993, right? But Teddy Roosevelt had been long, you know, up to heaven at this point, but I do bring him back in my book uh, because my character is now wearing a Teddy Roosevelt mask, right? And so he's coming back and lecturing the Pasadena elite. And so when I was first getting some blowback by parts of Pasadena, especially the people that don't take take themselves a bit seriously, I must say, um, 
uh, I realized, no, that's exactly what's supposed to be happening because my character lectures sort of their ideology. And, you know, it, it was it was all OK, you know, and uh, um, Teddy Roosevelt made some really funny comments. I mean, he about German efficiency and we should all act like more Germans. You know, of course, World War One, maybe we shouldn't all act like Germans. And then, of course, we know about 1914. But, yeah, he was basically he used to say, you know, uh, um, early Caltech, if it could only be like those great German institutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not them all, right, you know. Exactly. So even Teddy Roosevelt made a mistake now and then. <laughs> yeah, it's um, and then going back to like celebrity and you know, me, like seeing uh, Eddie yeah. Van Halen and stuff. And I, I've got to, you know, I they say never, never meet your heroes. I've I've gotten to meet, I've gotten to meet a lot of my heroes, and I got to say that the experience has been mostly great. Just right. because now I know. If I met them when I was 20, yeah. it would have been a different situation. Yeah. But now, but now it's like the playing field's a little more leveled out, and we're all we're all a little older. Yeah. So it, it's um, it, there's a little more. Uh, I guess the the start that now I can just go. I appreciate your work and just have a connection like that. Yeah. that that's what feels different now. For sure, uh, I'm a big fan of Eddie Van Halen. I think he's actually a very soft-spoken, intelligent guy. He gave up a lot of his childhood because first he was his parents wanted him to learn piano, and then he discovered. This, he was a guitar virtuoso and came up with the tapping thing, but you know I wanted I wanted famous people in the meat of the book in 1913 and 1912, and at first like people like Roosevelt, Upton Sinclair, Charles Fletcher Loomis. Um, Adolphus and Lillian Bush, the Budweiser people, they were making cameos. And I realized, why would I just have them, you know, flashing in a scene and then disappearing? They have to interact with my character and guide him towards the end. And that was a big change I made from early drafts. And so I have, you know, him, my, you know, my main guy, Nick Chance, dealing with Upton Sinclair. And Upton Sinclair, this famous muckraker, was his, was my character's chance to reveal the truth about the Colorado Strait Bridge. But he's too self-guided, narcissistic, uh, and and cowardly for all the good qualities he has. And it is my belief it's not enough being a good-hearted person. You have to go beyond being a good-hearted person to really do what the stars want you to do. And so Upton Sinclair, you know, misses out on his next muckraking, you know, story. It's okay, he was writing a story about Standard Oil, you know, you know, which later became the movie There Will Be Blood. You know, but I, uh, I I idolize Upton Sinclair, and uh, I don't agree with everything he did, but, man, that guy made such a big difference in America. You know, Upton Sinclair, Bob Woodward, those are the people we looked up to. But I wanted my guy to, you know, really be around him, hear how he spoke. I mean, when he came out to Pasadena, he was not doing very well, Upton Sinclair. He'd burned out. He was in really bad health, you know, but he loved the sunshine. He liked to write in his bathrobe in the Pasadena sunshine, you know, but he needed to be there willing to take my character who was a homer for Pasadena in his first life hear the truth and my character wusses out and that's why something terrible happens to him not up to Sinclair you know so you know it's it's it, it it's it's not just about a famous name it's about how they influence your journey yeah yeah and and and, and also we're bringing you know as characters of our lives we're bringing our own baggage to these poor celebrities sometimes who are like going I'm just trying to get through my day. Are you kidding me? Why are you Why are you dumping all this on yeah, me right you know, now? Yeah, you don't know about my problem. I didn't get my deal, or I'm, I'm owed five hundred thousand right, dollars. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, Lillian Bush, who was married to Adolphus Bush, who really was the modern day founder of the Anheuser Busch Corporation, he was one of the world's wealthiest guys, worth sixty million dollars in 1913 when he died, and yet 
he couldn't find, you know, he died at a relatively early age, but he couldn't find a doctor that could cure him. You know, he couldn't find um, immunity to losing a son. He had his own tragedies and pains. Right when he's dying, the pro, you know, the prohibitionist movement is roaring, right? And so he, what I think is so ironic is Adolphus Bush creates this 70-acre beautiful parkland called Bush Gardens in the Arroyo Seco in a city devoted to no alcohol. And they drove the, the lone saloon keeper out of business, you know, and, and like running for the hills, you know. So, um, you know, you do have to appreciate they're humans. And, you know, in a way, they had the worst thing that could ever happen. All their dreams came true. That, and we were talking about that before when I felt all of my dreams had come true with uh, the, you know, the film coming out that was based on my life that I worked on for, you know, way too long as a novel and whatever and getting my story out there. And then I just I went into a deep depression because I was just like everything that I ever wanted has happened. And that's why I started this podcast again, because I was like, wait, what was the last time that made me happy talking to other authors? And then look, at we just get to sit here and nerd out. This, this is all I want. You know, it's like, what do you want to do today? We can take you to the Bahamas and you can have uh, rum. And I'm like, yeah, I'd rather just talk to a writer in Los Angeles. How about talking to, uh, how about drinking rum while talking to a writer? You know, the best of both, the best of both worlds. Yeah, you know, um, uh, it's always fun to see your main characters fail. And fail spectacularly. Fail in spite of them. Fail, fail because they retreat from being bold. And um, you know there is a semi-clairvoyant dog in my in my book. And in the first life of my character, you know there's only two lives. Most of it's 1913. He's trying to nudge the guy, nudge nudge his owner, quote unquote, towards being the human that he should be. And so when he doesn't succeed the first time in the next life, he's much more overt. It's like mofo, you're a dense you know, homo sapien. I'm going to have to be more aggressive about making you realize things. And yeah. it takes a long time to, you know, I've, I'm so interested in reincarnation, but why don't we realize what we've been? You know, and maybe we don't, des- we don't deserve it yet. We don't, you know, you have to be more enlightened to do it. And, um, you know, uh, at the end, you know, people have to see whether my character does realize it or not, but it's, you know, it's, um, it, it's, it, it, we're, we're like, we're like all of us are characters in this drama that's going on forever, you know. And I, I just think that uh, that's so interesting to write about. The, the afterlife to me is the most interesting topic that could ever be. I'm yeah. sorry, climate change, you know, or who killed, you know, or who killed JFK. What could be more important or interesting about that? And I'm often disappointed by those types of movies, you know. So I, I wanted to have it. It's not the major part of my my story, you know. That the Col- you know, the Colorado Strait Bridge. I dare anybody to drive over it and not feel something, not feel spooked out, not not feel romanticized, not feel transported because it's, you know, there's not. I mean, as Steve Martin says in L.A. Story, you know, look at that building. It's 20 years old. There's not a lot of old stuff in Los Angeles, you know. But Pasadena is an older community, so you do see more. It's uh, it's in, I, I like uh, the I like the thought of reincarnation. I'm still trying to figure out exactly what is. So please, you know, tell me if it is. <laughs> but uh, but what's interesting is 
Well, you know, it, it might be too hard for us to take to know what we were. What if we were really shitty? And, you know, what or what it's yeah. it, it, and, and then sure. what if we're shitty now and we're enlightened later? Or, or what if we go back to a shitty? I don't know. Help me out. Well, there's um, there's a book that that's been a blockbuster uh, since it came out. It's called Journey of Souls. Okay. And it's uh, by a psychologist doing case studies. Yeah. And he talks to this one patient and he realized she's not insane. She's remembering her past lives. Wow. And he's he's kind of cracking the code. And he came up with the idea that, you know, after. We go up. We are, you know, we review our lives. It's all wonderful, but it's not. It's not, you know, gumdrop lane. And we 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 do watch our life almost like on a TV, and we review where we succeeded, where we failed, where we short arm something, where we showed our valiance and our humanity, and um, then we get ready at some point to come back, but we pick our parents, we pick our circumstances, predicating the idea these are the things we need to work on. There was a great... Wait, wait, wait. We pick our parents. We pick our parents. <laughs> I'm so sorry to my parents. They were teenagers when they had me, and yeah. I just, I gotta apologize. No, but I think maybe maybe your advisors honestly wanted you to, you, you decided that would be your challenge to overcome that, over come dealing in Hollywood depression your novel you know I mean it's not it's not an accident and sometimes you know, and the idea that also souls cluster so I mean as heartbreaking is about the helicopter crash with Kobe and those other families maybe father and daughter were together before maybe that family was together before in a different configuration that's why you know that could explain it uh, there's a terrific movie though that I'm sure the screenwriters read Journey of Souls it's called Defending Your Life with Mer with um, uh, Albert Brooks and Meryl Streep it is, and at one point, Albert Brooks goes like into the Hall of Memories, and it's a comedy, but it's a very heartfelt, heartfelt. And uh, he's reviewing his past lives, <laughs> like one life he's being chased by an African tiger, you know, another he, um, he, he, I, I think he helps somebody uh, in a fire. You know, so in one point he's being a coward, the other he's doing something great. Of course, Meryl Streep's character was a famous heroic person in history. You know what I mean? But it's so, I mean, I, I thought it could be such great fodder. For, for a book, you have somebody who's like a past life savant and go and, and like she, you know, they bring her into a party. It's like, hey, you know, instead of having a comedian or hire a couple to fight, this person goes, hey, oh, yeah. by the way, did you know that you were. Uh, <laughs> An Eskimo or a penguin or you were, you know, uh, you know, a, a warmongering colonel or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like, get this lady out of here. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, just want a drink. <laughs> yeah, it's well, it's fascinating because, you know, I've I finally like started playing with tarot cards and stuff, stuff that I could never do as a kid. It was right. I would just be bringing sure. Satan right into the, yeah. you know, he's, Satan's going to ask fuck you right now if you do this. Yeah. And um, yeah, I watch Ghost I've heard the growling. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but then but then they you know there's there's people that are like real psychics and do life uh, they they do um past life uh, what do they call it um in their regression. practice regression sure. where it's where it's just like I want I want to go get that I want to I want to vibe that I was told and I was a Eskimo woman at the turn of the century and I was really uh, can I just give you an Eskimo kiss right now <laughs> for sure. Uh, and I, but I was told that I uh, was on the warpath against Russians going and trying to claim that land. And it's funny because later in, in this life, I want to be a Sovietologist, you know, because I was convinced the Russians 
cheated at every arms control agreement they ever signed. I still believe that. But maybe the, some of that was carrying over. I guess this means I know how to cook with whale meat and I can start a fire in like sub-zero temperatures. You know, so, but I mean, it, it could be a dangerous thing, don't you think? Go and ask, what, what have I really been? It's a dangerous thing to find truth. Yeah, it's uh, it's dangerous to, uh, I mean, even when we look inside ourselves and sometimes go, oh, wait, why did I do that at that age? And then sit there and go, oh, I do have a dark side. You know, when like, we kind of realize For that sure. we we do have potential to be shitty. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, we do, you know, and everybody has, you know, dark thoughts and yeah. only if you act on them. Right. Um that's part of the reason I love animals so much because animals, animals are so much more in tune with, I think, the universe and their sensory perceptions. And I do think man and his ego, you know, it's like we, we, we were born with antennas and then by the time we were hitting adulthood, we're doing nothing but wearing those down because we're so caught up in our own head. And that's and I do believe in the magic of dogs, the dog that inspired uh, Royo in my book is on his last few days in this world, and I, I'm I'm almost a thousand percent sure he lived on this long, sixteen and a half. He's over a hundred years old. You know, he lived on to see this book get out there and to see me get my start. You know what I mean? And I, I don't know if humans would hang on necessarily in that case. So. Sorry if I, yeah, I mean, I have a sign up in my office saying I want to be the person my dog thinks I am. I usually fail, but I do want to meet his expectations. Yeah. I like that a lot. I just, um, I interviewed uh, Bruce Cameron who wrote uh, A Dog's, Dog's World. and Right. He's a gigantic figure. Yes. Yeah. 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 We all we all live in Bruce Cam- in uh, his world. Cam- yeah. Yeah. As, yeah. But um, the, I'll tell you the, the you know, uh, dog's dog reincarnation is actually its own gigantic literary niche yes and you know the person that started it is this very talented writer up in the northwest named gar stein he wrote a book called the art of racing in the rain it later became a major motion picture and uh, the um yeah and uh he has a dog that is kind of narrating the story and the dog knows he's come back and he learns about the world by watching the discovery channel Right. But it was a brilliant book because he, he the uh, his owner is a NASCAR driver and NASCAR was getting just big back then. Fox had just signed them, you know, to, a, you know, and that, that was a, it was a, a really smart move by him. But I, I think he did pick up an idea that dogs have stories to tell us from their own perspective. However, I did want to make my dog more of an a-hole more of a rascal and more, you know, um, you know, um, uh, prone to stealing, faking a limp to get food, you know, kind of the Oliver Twist thing, as well as prone to getting in bed when my character is with his woman. Not going too far, but there's a point to it. You know what I mean? (laughs) Kind of like a dog, you know, like a bad 17-year-old. You know what I mean? So I wanted to make my dog different than the usual, you know, uh, sweet, you know, disciplined animals you see in most dog-related projects. Right. And then then that gives them their own struggle, too. But it's it's so intriguing how dogs live in the present so so well. And I think that's something that we all need to keep being reminded of. It's come back... Come back to now. Come back to now. Come back to now. They're pure instinct. They don't have a fear of death, you know, but they sure have an understanding of, you know, of 
of human pain and uh, I've had different dogs at different levels of emotional IQ and, and my current dog is uh, it's great I don't think my, what I think my beagle when I was a kid and going through a lot of stuff that that dog just was on it that dog was on my he had chip on tuned in well on his inner you know internal radio yeah. but they're just I don't know there's you know if I ever go to a party I, I can't sit for more than an hour at the adult table I have to go hang out with little kids or dogs that's where I find the most joy yeah. is that weird no yeah well there's a beauty to kids because they they don't have the filter yet either they kind of have an honesty you know yeah. where it's just where you go hey do I look fat and they're like yeah I bet they don't give a shit. <laughs> you know, there's, that's that's one really small example, but but um, at, um, back on the issue of reincarnation, you know, yeah. there, there's there's whole legions of people that study past life, and they will often go. I mean, probably more parts of the world believe in reincarnation than don't. We just are very. Um, jaded by, by Western points of view, scientific reductionism. Um, but they will go interview kids like between the ages of two to five because that's when their memories are freshest of where they've been. And there's been some startling, startling things where these kids know names of ancestors and villages and geographic facts and historical incidents. There is no way the most the one with a 200 IQ could have known these things. But that's why you go to go to go to beings that are less that are not polluted yet yeah, yeah. by their current life yeah. so i find that super interesting what, what would be intriguing and i wonder if that's one of the reasons why they don't have speech yet because if they had too much speech then we would be blown away so may, uh, it might be too much information so now let's give let's not let them have speech for a while yeah. I, I, that, see that i come up with all these other weird theories you know, that, that's true um, um there's a book out there called soul survivor which is about a little american a little kid in America, like a two or three, starts having awful night terrors. The mom is a Christian. The dad's a Catholic. And um, it comes out through unbelievable detail. This, he, this child was a World War II pilot who died at the Sea of Japan. And as he got older and his speech developed, he was reciting the names of crewmates, ships, nicknames for different types of Japanese combat, where he went down. And, you know, I mean, it, it, this is an example of, you know, coming to grips with a reality we're not prepared to accept. It, it's, yeah, so Soul Survivor. It, and Chris Cuomo, who's now on CNN, this is he. This was his story when he worked for 2020. You know, and uh, the dad struggled mightily with the idea there could be reincarnation because as a Catholic, he did not believe it. You know, you go up or down, yeah. right? So I play with that a little bit in my book because I think that's, you know, that's fascinating. And there was some tension between the, mom, between the parents over it. But the child, you know, and then eventually, if you can believe this, the child later met surviving crew members. You know, uh, the reincarnated pilot was meeting his contemporaries. Of course, he was a little kid, and they're super old by now, right? right. Can you know? Is that not a kick in the pants? That's a trip. I know that, and the um, and I wonder if it you have to be a certain um, like a certain temperament with the child to uh, to really kind of draw those things out and let them go to those places, because yeah. um, you know if you have like a Christian family background they're not going to let you go there but if if, the, if there's a little more nurturing of yeah. go ahead and just just what's on your mind right now what do you you know and yeah. let them well, the mom was that way okay. in, in this story you know when i in in my book um you know uh, b before he comes back my main character sees a vision into the future of pasadena and so he happens to see a very well-known store 
that dominates Colorado Boulevard now, and it's Banana Republic. So when he comes awake in 1993, after dying in 1913, guess where he wakes up? In Banana Republic. And he's spacing out, looking at a sign celebrating the Colorado bridges, Street Bridges reopening. And, and he asked the sales clerk, who just wants to meet a sales quota, do you know when they started calling it a boulevard, not a street? Because when he was in 1913, it was called Colorado Street. There wasn't a boulevard. So I have, I mean, you have to have some sense of humor. And I thought Bullo Banana Republic so epitomized the modern age of corporate retailing, you know, as opposed to mom and, mom and pops. And I like Banana Republic myself. I've worn Banana Republic jackets at, at book events. So anyway, I, I have fun with it. And it's okay to have fun with it. Yeah. And remember, I remember Banana Republic at the malls where it was like you walked in there and it was like a safari. Do you remember that, how they used to set up the stores? Somebody was talking about that last night. I really don't remember that. Yeah, no, no. But I, I guess it was sort of like, you know, it's like uh, they could have called itself Pith Helmets or Us. Yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now you won't see any of that. I mean, now there's, in my reckoning, you know, there was... Uh, Peruvian rainforests and, you know, oh. political correct Muzak and, you know, um, when uh, I'm a giant Led Zeppelin fan and I do, I did find out or figured out so many Led Zeppelin kind of mystic lyrics felt really well in my book. And so I teased them in there and then I'm getting ready to turn in my manuscript, final draft, and my publisher goes, you know, they're the most litigious band in history. And they use a Google program to figure out if their words or lyrics are appearing. And it's like, oh, Oh, damn. So I had to go rearrange them a little bit. But, but a, there, you know, we used to party down by the Colorado Street Bridge in the late 70s, right? And there was a Led Zeppelin song called The Crunch on House of the Holding, where at the end of the song, Robert Plant bebops. And he goes, uh, where's that bridge? Has anybody seen that confounded bridge? Of course, I can't do it as well as him. You know, that was our mantra. Because we all worshipped at the feet of Robert Plant and Jimmy Page, etc., or at all. And, uh, you know, that was our rallying cry. And so that worked really nicely. All these things just got in my, you know, misaligned brain and it poured out an arroyo. I just wish I could have used the direct lyrics. You know, there's one lyrics to another Led Zeppelin song that says, In the, um, in the road you will see the light. It's just perfect. It's just perfect. But I think people will get the drift anyway. Yeah. It's um, it's in it's intriguing because a lot of lyrics end up in books, and the yeah. people have asked me. They're like, I I've even talked to both author. Well, the, uh, I think it was Marlon James' first book. He put 16 horsepower of this band. He put uh, he put their lyrics in there, and he and he gave them credit. And then I I also used to be a music journalist, so I, I met up with the lead singer. I was like, Hey, did you know this writer did? And he's like, He didn't. He's like, No, I never even heard of this. And I gave him the book. I'm like, the book's really good. And he's like, oh, wow. And then he's like, oh, he got the title of their song wrong. You know, that was like the main thing he was worried about. And it was, um, but it intrigued me because. It, but he, he didn't, he didn't uh, go, you know, take a picture of it and go, you know what? My attorney will be very interested in seeing this. And, and, you would think they would be flattered to the Dickens, you know. But, it, you know, I do have a, the narrator in the book turns out to be a, a relative of one of the members of Led Zeppelin. You'll have to find out which one. You know, I, I'm trying to honor them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, I don't know. It, it's, I, it wasn't, my book did not hinge on that, but I wish I could have used yeah. those lyrics. So, you know, I have to respect their work. So, so if anybody steals my stuff, my lords are coming at you. <laughs> the, um, and then when the movie comes out, I'm sure they'll, they'll, they'll be ecstatic to add their, their songs to the soundtrack. Well, you know, um, and, meet, and meet you. They're like, where's the author? They're going to meet the author. I saw, um, so check this out. I saw Robert Plant. 
uh, perform at the Orpheum Theater in downtown Los Angeles. And he played at the, you know, and the Orpheum is one of the historic movie palaces. And my grandfather relocated from Tin Pan Alley in New York to Los Angeles to work in the film business. But before movies were really going, you know, talkies were going, he used to, there used to be orchestras playing at silent movies. My grandfather, I believe, played the Orpheum. So I'm sitting feet we saw squeeze which is one of my favorite bands oh, of all time yeah, yeah. squeezes squeeze was the heir to the beatles yeah. people just don't realize it so i'll have to convert them but uh, uh i'm standing I, I mean i'm sitting feet from where my grandfather played almost a hundred years earlier and that filled me with such excitement and i really i want to make my ancestors proud i want to show that i'm we're care i'm carrying on the tradition you know of beating my head against the creative wall see grandfather so isn't that i love that i love those types of connections yeah. you know and um, anyway, um, you know, when you're when you've had people in Los Angeles, you know, you're going to come across places where they succeeded, where they failed, you know, where they struggled. And, uh, you know, what my, you know, the Zollers, that's my mom's main name. They've been here for 100 years. So carrying on the tradition. Wow. Chip, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Wait, this is just part one, right? <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Tony. Chip Jacobs on Drinks with Tony. Check out his book, Arroyo. Buy it from your local independent bookstore if you can, as many are shipping and working during this lockdown. So support your independent bookstore. Next week on the show, we have Cara Black. She's the author of 19 novels in the Amy LaDuke series, which I always pronounce wrong. Um, <laughs> she'll, and, and she'll correct me next week when I say it's wrong. Amy LaDuke. That's my French for you. Uh, her new novel is a standalone novel. It's called Three Hours in Paris, and it comes out on April 7th. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.